You're listening to At Home in Oregon, a podcast about housing policy. I'm your host, Shelley Dennison. Today I'm talking to Alexis Biddle. He works for A Thousand Friends of Oregon as the Great Communities Program Director and Staff Attorney. According to their website, quote, our mission is working with Oregonians to enhance our quality of life by building livable urban and rural communities, protecting family farms and forests, and conserving natural areas. There were a lot of topics that I wanted to cover in this episode. Uh, to get the nonprofit advocacy perspective. We talk about legislation that Thousand Friends of Oregon has uh, advocated for, including House Bills 2001 and 2003. We talk about uh, racial and environmental justice implications of housing development. We talk about uh, communication and how we can provide better communication to municipalities regarding uh, the state-level housing legislation and how we can fight misinformation. Um, I really hope you enjoy this episode. I had a great time interviewing Alexis, and I think he is a uh, wealth of information and provides a lot of great insight on some of the issues that we are looking at now with housing policy in Oregon. We'll go ahead and start with, uh, why don't you introduce yourself and let us know who you are? Sure. Um, so my name is Alexis Biddle. I work with 1000 Friends of Oregon as their Great Communities and uh, Great Communities Program Director and uh, Staff Attorney. And I started working with 1000 Friends about three years ago. I was a private sector planner uh, for about a year and a half before that. Um, and I graduated from the University of Oregon's uh, Master's in Public, um, or, sorry, Master's in Community and Regional Planning. And I got a law degree from the University of Oregon as well. That's awesome. And I, yeah, I originally got into planning with a focus on uh, trying to reduce climate uh, carbon emissions uh, through transportation and land use planning. That's the... Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's a lot of interesting overlap. I feel like I got into planning for like one specific thing that I was interested in. I was interested in international development. Mm -hmm. And then I discovered that everything kind of overlaps and it's kind of a domino effect when it comes to yeah. planning and how everything interacts with each other and is interdependent on each other. Um, yeah. So your role with A Thousand Friends of Oregon, uh, how did you end up where you are now? And what kind of responsibilities do you have in your role? Yeah, um, well, I started out, I worked for a consulting firm called DKS Associates, and I was a transportation planner. And I worked, uh, while I was in grad school, I had a position with uh, the Oregon Department of Transportation as a Hatfield Fellow through Portland State University. And I got to work on some of the most cutting edge stuff on like automated vehicles and connected vehicle policy at the state level. Um, and that got me just really interested in, you know, how mobility and transportation is really changing. Um, and right now we're at this like inflection point of, you know, as big of a change as perhaps when we start, first invented the automobile with the advent the invention of, you know, share, shared mobility like Uber and Lyft and, uh, how that might be able to be combined in the future with uh, automated vehicles. Um, so that that uh, was kind of my background in planning. And the, one of the, I, I think I've learned that you can't really separate um, land use and transportation because land use is really the demand side of transportation. It really drives a lot of what the needs are for how people get around. Um, and when I was a, 
when I was in grad school, I was also a taxi driver. And that really um, kind of showed me real life examples of how uh, equity and transportation are really linked. And a lot of the people that were my cab customers were unable to afford a vehicle, didn't live near tra high quality transit, and they also didn't live within walking distance of things to meet their basic needs like a grocery store or doctor's office. So I was often driving people that were already low income and couldn't afford a vehicle and they had to pay an extra $20 for things um, like going to the doctor or going to get groceries. Um, and it really highlighted to me some of the equity issues around you know, how it, it can be expensive uh, to be poor. And so that, that really got me interested in kind of like the intersection of uh, social justice and like climate change and, and uh, environmental concerns around transportation. Um, and I also wrote a paper uh, that was published in a journal when I was in uh, undergrad, or I'm sorry, when I was in grad school on um, how when states adopt goals around climate change, uh, how that influences, uh, for instance, like the project selection criteria for when uh, local or regional governments are selecting projects to um, move the needle or not move the needle on uh, the greenhouse gas emissions. Um, once they've adopted these goals, it seems like they should be changing the way that they're making decisions so that we're focused on uh, reducing greenhouse gas emissions. And what we found was that not a lot really changes once, the, once there's still a lot of political influence and, and decisions don't get made in a real strategic way around reducing carbon emissions from the transportation sector. So that kind of informed my background in getting into land use and transportation advocacy. Um, and 1000 Friends of Oregon has been a, a environmental law organization um, and they've been focusing on planning since their founding in 1973. And my skill set as both a transportation planner and a lawyer really match, meshed perfectly with our, with our mission and, and the type of expertise that 1000 Friends needs. So um, it was, uh, I, I actually first applied to 1000 Friends uh, at a, when I was just graduating before I had a job as a transportation planner. And it, it was a, for a position focused on uh, rural work in terms of, we, so we have a distinction where we work both on rural and urban issues. Um, in rural areas, we're usually focused on trying to protect farmland um, and really make sure that only development that's supportive of farmland uh, and farming and agriculture and forestry is, um, is what gets allowed in, in rural areas. And we try to make sure that in urban areas, that's where things like uh, industrial jobs and uh, housing are, are, are focused. Um, and so I tried to get the job my first time and uh, there was somebody that was more qualified. And so I was a transportation planner for a little bit. Um, and then another job came open on, their, uh, on the urban team at 1000 Friends of Oregon and uh, I was hired for that position. That's awesome. So what do you do now yeah. in that in that job? So I work statewide um, on both housing, transportation and uh, economic development issues. And we uh, try to stay abreast and informed about any major planning project that cities are uh, undergoing um, in every community throughout the entire state, which is a lot for one or small team of people to do. Um, but I follow the notices for um, the communities throughout the state through the D Department of Land Conservation and Development. They have this 
uh, notice system called the uh, post-acknowledgement plan amendment process. And uh, once something is noticed, or sometimes I can learn about projects before they get noticed. Um, but we try to get involved at, when things go to the planning commission. Um, and then to city council, we advocate uh, for things that are going to, you know, increase housing uh, diversity and availability inside of urban growth boundaries, um, and also make sure that we're providing the best uh, types of jobs uh, that are both, you know, high high wage and also uh, efficient in terms of how the uh, the city is using their industrially zoned land. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And then there's always the transportation element um, that we focus on, which kind of integrates the housing and jobs um, aspect of how cities do their planning. So. If there's a transportation project for, say, uh, a new expanded bus service, uh, we'll we'll support that at the planning level. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, how do you go about? So, coming from like a nonprofit advocacy perspective, you know, with um, limited authority, right? You can't require that cities do certain things, or you can't require that the state does certain things. How do you go about advocating for? your mission and your goals? Yeah, well, uh, you're right. We can't, we don't have any power to dictate what, what goes on, but there are some legal requirements such as um, the transportation planning rule uh, informs cities in a uh, pretty defined way around uh, what, what they need to do to make sure that we're moving towards uh, non-automobile dependency. Um, so we'll review transportation plans uh, with that in mind. Um, and then there's also at the, at the housing level, there's goal 10 and goal 10 requires that cities have to plan for folks of all income levels in their community so that there's housing options that meet their needs. Um, and we have a long way to go uh, to do that because we've, we, although we've had the planning system since 1974, 73, 74, um, we have a single family uh, zoning paradigm that has been in place for over the last 60, 70 years that has really limited the, the amount of housing options uh, that has made it really difficult. And that's why we see uh, increasing housing on affordability. Um, and so cities need to constantly be, I think, updating and trying to make sure that they're um, allowing more types of uh, more types of housing to be built um, so that they're, they're, uh, we're, we're keeping up with where things are at with the cost of housing and uh, the wages that are available in, in certain communities. Um, so there's goal 10 and then um, there's also goal nine, which is the economic piece of the land use planning system. Um, and we often, uh, cities have a lot of flexibility in their economic development uh, under the planning system. Um, but we try to make sure that the, the facts that they're relying on to, to make their projections on what type of jobs they're anticipating are in line with data that supports it. Um, so while we can't always, you know, and we don't, we don't try to tell cities what to do exactly, but we try to make sure that there's at least uh, informed, well-founded data that they're relying on uh, to make their decisions so that the outcomes are, are in the public interest. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, you mentioned, you talked a little bit about, you know, goal 10 and planning for multiple income levels. Um, you know, I'm thinking about uh, the involvement that A Thousand Friends of Oregon had with uh, promoting House Bill 2001 and re-legalizing middle housing in yeah. uh, municipalities across Oregon. Um, 
what kind of how how is Thousand Friends of Oregon involved in that legislation? Sure. So um, I wasn't personally involved with the uh, state level push exactly. I worked a lot in local communities, like writing um, letters to the editor and things like that, or having having some of our members support us by writing letters to the editor. Um, but we're part of an organization, uh, a coalition called the the Housing Alliance, and that group uh, worked together. And it's groups like Habitat for Humanity, Thousand Friends of Oregon, um, and we uh, worked at the state level to uh, push for this the House Bill two thousand one and the House Bill two thousand and three, which I can talk about, um, to get adopted as legislation. And prior prior to House Bill two thousand one, there was also Ten, Senate Bill 1051, which required that uh, all cities above 2,500 in population uh, need to allow accessory dwelling units uh, for every single family, every every single family dwelling that's in a, uh, a single family, in, in the residential zones. Mm-hmm. So these different piece of le- pieces of legislation that uh, Thousand Friends supports, um, do you, once they get passed, um, are are you able to provide any kind of resources or support to cities who are now needing to implement um, these requirements? Yeah, yeah, and we're doing that now. Um, so first, when after the rule after Senate, or after House Bill two thousand one was adopted, uh, there was a rule advisory committee at DLCD, the Department of Land Conservation and Development, and that committee really put a lot of the detail into what uh, the what House Bill two thousand one meant. Um, and we sat on that advisory committee uh, and helped in shape some of the some of the rules that would really guide the cities in the particulars. And then uh, that was wrapped up in um, December of 2020. And um, cities are now responsible. The medium cities were responsible, which were cities between 10,000 and 25,000 in population, uh, for allowing duplexes on every lot. Um, and their deadline to do that was June 30th of this year. And for the most part, all the cities that were, I think it was 21 cities uh, that, that had that responsibility have successfully done it or have uh, chosen to opt to adopt the state's model code, uh, which came out of the Rural Advisory Committee process. Um, and I think, so, I think there okay. was one city that actually didn't adopt anything out of protest. Was it Camus? No, 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 no not Cam- that's in Washington. There- Can be. Cam, yeah, Camby, yeah. Um, and a couple of, like, I think Klamath Falls and uh, Central Point in Southern Oregon, they also didn't. And it wasn't so much out of protest in some of those situations as it was just the, the cities didn't have the staff capacity. They had, okay. other, they had other projects going on. And they are currently going to be using the model code, but I eventually okay. they might they might adopt their own standards. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so let's talk a little bit about specifically Hospital 2001, because that's mm-hmm. kind of the hot topic right now. Um, so a lot of the tension that exists right now is, um, you know, recognizing the need for that kind of legislation, that kind of policy making to come from the state level mm-hmm. um, and to come from, you know, a higher level of government as opposed to local governments. And at the same time, a lot of local governments, especially in small and mid-sized cities in Oregon, feeling like this is a loss of local control and a loss of home mm-hmm. rule. Um, 
the city that I work for, um, as a population of about 11,000, um, has a pretty conservative city council and is definitely feeling that, you know, that tension of thinking um, something that often gets repeated in city council meetings is, you know, all of this legislation about housing. These are Portland solutions to Portland problems. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I guess, how would you how would you respond to that? Sure. Well, th- uh, for one, I recognize that there is definitely this tension between local control and, and state level guidance. And the the issue really is that over uh, you know decades of time, there was local control, and that it has led to this uh, paradigm of single-family housing being the dominant in most cities. Over seventy percent of land is zoned for single-family, and that is a drive. One of the biggest driving forces behind the high cost of housing, and cities have had this responsibility under Goal Ten for over forty years to meet the needs of folks uh, of all income levels. And they have failed to do so um, largely because uh, as local governments are making their housing policies, the uh, squeakiest wheels get the grease. And a lot of lower income folks don't have a voice in their local uh, processes. Um, A lot of lower income folks don't have the time. They're working and uh, aren't aren't sometimes even aware that these type of uh, large decisions that impact uh, their lives in the long run are being made. Um, and so the question is really about when you say local control, it's about who's making, who, whose interest and who's making those decisions at the local, at the local level. And a lot of times uh, it's a, very, a much more privileged class of folks. Um, and so the state recognized that this was a failure at the local level. Um, and after decades of, of uh, cities trying to do better and failing, uh, the state stepped in and decided that they needed to take some of this authority and and make the decision in the public interest to allow for more diverse housing types. And that said, there still is a, some flexibility within the implementation of House Bill 2001. So it's not just a one size fits all, um, you know, drop in, dropping in a code into some into a city without any reflection on the city's values or the city's um concerns or local needs. So there, the, there is like minimum compliance standards with House Bill 2001 that they, the cities do have to meet. Um, but there's also a lot of things that the cities can do to encourage what they want to see more of, um, you know, and, and, and mitigate some of the things they don't. Um, so it's definitely something where there, there is some decision-making authority taken away, but the cities still have uh, some authority to, to shape the, their policies at the local level. Sure. Yeah. Um, so an- another criticism that I hear from my city's officials and the officials of cities that are a similar size um, is that um, these smaller cities don't want to grow. Right. Uh, what I'm constantly hearing is we don't want to be Gresham. We don't want to be Portland. We want to stay a small, semi-rural town. Uh, and that means um, very limited housing development, even with single-family residential, uh, detached single-family homes. Um, so, how would you how would you respond to that? This sort of pushback against increased urbanization. Yeah, well, or, so it's not new with House Bill two thousand one. Uh, if we go back a step further and look at just the Oregon land use planning system, the planning system requires that all communities have a land supply. Um, 
for 20 years of housing need and 20 years of economic needs. And cities are required to update their local comprehensive plans um, in, in accordance with that. And th while they're required to, to consider efficiency measures to do things more efficiently, there is no option for cities to choose not to grow. Um, and as much as cities try to sometimes limit their growth as, as much as they can, um, the, they're really, as, as housing costs are increasing, uh, there's going to be demographic change in their, in their communities. And what often happens is that the folks that can least afford uh, to live in a community will get priced out and either have to move to another community, another satellite community, um, or make trade-offs between cost of living like housing and things like food or healthcare. Um, and so it's, it's more of a question of how we grow than whether or not we grow or not in the Oregon land use system. And with House Bill 2001, uh, it's prioritizing making sure that we're creating more diversity of housing types so that uh, people of more income levels can uh, meet their daily needs in, in their communities uh, and you know, not be displaced. Right, right. Um, it seems almost like a um, kind of a backwards conception of supply versus demand. So we know that um, supply follows demand and not the other way around. Whereas these smaller cities are thinking, well, if we limit the supply, then we'll limit the demand. But that's not actually yeah. the case. What ends up happening is that the prices of the existing homes just continue to go up. Um, yeah. You mentioned that um, one of the most salient variables in why housing prices in Oregon, specifically the Portland metro area, are so high is because so much of our residential land is zoned for single-family residential. Mm -hmm. um, why Why else do you think, particularly the Portland metro region, um, housing prices are continuing to go up exponentially? Yeah, um, that's a good question. I think part, part of it I don't know if I can speak to specific reasons why the Portland metro region is, uh, and I don't know the data well enough to know if, if Portland metro region is uh, growing at a faster rate than say Bend or Eugene, Springfield metropolitan area. But um, another factor is just the long-term infrastructure costs of supporting uh, housing is, it's much more expensive to support the infrastructure of single family residential zones, because if you think about how much more space it takes up, we're spending more money as a public on roads, on sewers, on things like fire service and school districts. And all of those costs get factored into the cost of living in, in, in areas. And uh, the way that they've been financed uh, over time, uh, it's, it's kind of like the bills are coming due. We've had, we had the initial wave of development, which in, in some cases paid for the cost of the initial infrastructure. But as that infrastructure is aging and we need to replace it or repair it, uh, we, it needs to come from somewhere. And it's more and more often coming from the general funds of cities. And so this, this fund, the, these funds, uh, or the costs of, of just taxes and, and things like that are growing in a lot of cases because cities can't afford to maintain their existing development. Um, and so if you think about those costs are then spread across the entire community, including people that don't live in single family homes. And there's this equity issue uh, where a lot of lower income people that aren't living in single family homes are actually paying for this, the infrastructure and maintenance of uh, the neighborhoods that, that are. 
That's really interesting. Um, yeah. yeah, that's that's a really insightful connection. Um, that it, it it becomes clearly a both procedural and substantive justice issue mm-hmm. when the costs of um, detached single family homes are borne not just by the people who live in those homes, but uh, are borne disproportionately by low income folks. Um, yeah. That's really interesting. Um, let's talk about. Um, so two of the things that Thousand Friends of Oregon works on are natural resource preservation. So like you said, protecting farmland, rural areas, forested areas, as well as promoting um, smart uh, housing growth. Mm-hmm. So is there a tension between those two things? And how does your organization find a balance between those two topics? Sure. Well, a lot of it. I, so I, in general, I think that they're actually pretty well balanced in terms of we, by focusing growth and development inside of urban growth boundaries, it puts a lot less pressure on the natural resources outside of urban growth boundaries. Um, there is obviously the question of as cities are expanding their urban growth boundaries, if they're growing and they need to, uh, they have to expand it somewhere and that's sacrificing some sort of natural resources. And the, uh, the loca- they're called locational factors that cities have to consider when they're uh, expanding their urban growth boundaries. And those help cities do the best job that they possibly can at protecting rural or protecting natural resources and at the same time meeting their housing needs. So there's definitely, as, as a population is growing, there's going to be always more pressure on the natural environment. Um, but the urban growth boundary expansion process requires cities to do it in a, in a way that is, uh, you know, the most thoughtful way to make sure that we're meeting our needs and at the same time uh, protecting the natural resources. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so, for instance, there's a soil classification system and a city is required to map where the high quality soils are around the edges of their city. And they have to select uh, the areas that are lower quality soils and areas that are already somewhat developed. They're called exception areas or usually areas that are zoned for rural residential um, purposes where they're like larger, like say five acres, um, lot sizes for um, those areas should be incorporated into a city first uh, before they start going into large greenfield farmland for for their development. Yeah, that makes sense. So it's built into the UGB expansion process, uh, protecting natural resources. Um, So thinking about this from a justice issue, um that intersection of natural resource preservation and housing um we know f- when we when we look through this through uh an environmental justice lens we know that um people who do not have the same socioeconomic status as more affluent privileged usually white people um disproportionately bear the environmental burden of Mm -hmm. development and uh, urbanization. Um, Mm -hmm. So what kind of work is Thousand Friends of Oregon doing on environmental justice on that issue? Yeah, it's a great question. And this actually has come up recently with um, just the last heat wave back in late June, early July this year, where if you were to map the areas that were redlined uh, for, you know, intentional segregation back uh, 
you know, 50, 60 years ago in, in the 40s and 50s and 60s, um, that those areas are the same areas that would that had the greatest uh, impact of, or the, of these heat waves where the urban heat island is greater there. And, um, you know, people that suffered from that heat and died even from that heat uh, lived more intensely in those areas that were redlined in the past. And so one thing that's critical is uh, as we're looking at increasing uh, density and increasing uh, housing diversity and options that we're also prioritizing tree canopy and making sure that uh, we're, we're, we're not just uh, you know paving over our, our existing urban lands, but you, but do, trying to meet both the needs of housing and making it a, a human habitat that is is livable and high quality for people of all incomes, and, and not just you know uh, you know putting up massive parking lots or or, or housing. So that one one thing that we focus on a lot is parking requirements. Where if we if we can reduce the amount of uh, impermeable surface and parking, um, it not only lowers the cost of housing, it also increases our opportunities to have more green space, um, and and mitigate some of that heat island factor that happens from urban development. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, you know, in the city that I work for, and I imagine that this is a similar sentiment in other cities the pushback against development in general is we don't want to cut down trees. We don't want to ruin, you know, these rural areas. Uh, we don't want to, you know, clear cut, you know, acres and acres and acres of land for, you know, massive residential subdivisions. And it seems like, well, then the obvious answer is middle housing, right? The obvious mm -hmm. answer is increasing density. Um, yeah. but you also don't want to use the D word. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. That's a scary word. Um, yeah. So what other policies um, or what other legislation is being talked about now that a thousand friend of Oregon is getting involved in or are advocating for? Yeah, uh, one that has been a little bit more under the radar, but which is a really big deal is House Bill 2003 was passed at the same time as House Bill 2001. And House Bill 2003 kind of has two components of it. One is that there's going to be this uh, state level um, guidance on looking at housing needs, not just at the local level inside each jurisdiction, but looking at it at a regional level because housing markets are a regional thing. People don't just choose to live in one city. They have a job somewhere usually, and then they try to pick somewhere to live that is within a reasonable commute distance from that city. So that means that people are often choosing among multiple cities um, where they want to, where they want to um, work and live. And uh, so house bill 2003, has this uh, component where they're looking at regional housing needs. And they're also, another component of it is this, what's called the housing production strategy. And so cities need to identify, it's not just what we've done with House Bill 2001, where we have, um, where, we're, where, we're, where we are reducing barriers to this middle these middle housing types. Uh, 2003 requires that cities have affirmative policies that will, they identify what, they're lacking what what um, what income levels they're 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 not meeting what uh, and how they and they need to identify ways that they can get there. Um, so these these strategies could include things like waiving system development charges for um, certain certain homes or um, also doing tax tax payments of, of different sorts um, and really trying to figure out ways to increase like increase the likelihood 
that that the types of housing they're missing are going to get built. Um, and cities don't have cities don't build housing; it's not their role. Um, but they can s- set up the regulations and and um, you know the incentives to make sure that we're doing as much as we can at the local level to ensure that the private sector and the market rate housing that needs to get built is getting built. And so uh, House Bill 2003 is really exciting in that it's going to require cities to not only make these strategies, but also actually execute them and, and carry them through. Um, and that, that will be uh, something to watch over the next, uh, like they're going to start, start doing it over the next uh, couple of years. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I'm really excited about that. I've started doing some kind of background research on on our city's housing situation, what some strategies would be that make sense in our context and our city. Um, and I think this kind of goes back to um, development and growth being um, not super popular in small and mid-sized cities in Oregon. Um and having to find that right balance, that context-appropriate balance of, um, you know, what really are the interests of residents and public officials, elected or appointed, and what's in the best interest of, um, you know, increasing the housing supply in Oregon to make it more accessible for more people. Um, and it's such an interesting tension and such an interesting challenge to try to face uh, my city council uh, and planning commission are about to vote to eliminate planned developments from our um, development code, in part because they don't want uh, single family residential areas to be uh, to allow uh, for anything that isn't a detached single family home. Mm-hmm. Obviously, House Bill 2001 sort of forces their hand but um they're they're doing what they can to create more regulatory barriers to housing development and housing production so how do you think if you were in my shoes how would you go about working with that kind of um governmental context in developing a housing production strategy yeah well I think the role of a planner is, is uh, a difficult one because you find yourself in this place of tension where you often are aware and have the facts and the data to, to show that there's significant unmet needs. Um, and at the same time, you're also uh, serving elected officials that are have been democratically elected and they are the ones that you know make final decisions. Um, and I think one of the most important things for planners to do is not, I think data can take you some of the way, but you can't just tell the data to people and expect that the right policy outcomes are going to be decided upon. I think it really is about figuring out ways to do public outreach that that can bring people in and show uh, elected officials that the, uh, the stories, there, there are many people in their communities that are, that are, that are struggling and uh, they might hear more often from the folks that don't want development, um, but they, if they better understand the stories and the, and the folks that um, are really struggling to meet their needs for basic housing and, and other and other things like that, um, that if, if if planners can do a better job at storytelling and get and increasing uh, access to public decision making processes, uh, I think that is one of the most compelling ways uh, for, for planners to kind of be this facilitator of, you know, showing the full picture 
uh, to, to local electeds. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Um, I also think that there's a little bit of a communication breakdown. Um, mm. and there's a lot of misinformation about, uh, what these different pieces of legislation are requiring and who's behind them, who advocated for them. Um, there was, uh, a resident who spoke at a city council meeting who thought that House Bill 2001 meant that um, when we hit 25,000 residents, uh, we're not allowed to build any single family detached homes at all. Um, mm -hmm. There's definitely people who just read the headlines and see, oh, we're banning single family residential zoning. That means we can't build any more single family homes. Um, there's also this idea that, um, you know, it's developers that are behind and bankrolling all of these pieces of legislation so they can, you know, build more homes and make more money. Um, so how would you deal with kind of those uh, gaps in communication and how would you deal with that misinformation? Yeah. Uh, well, I think one important element is to focus on that House Bill 2001 is merely removing barriers to building these uh, types of housing, it is not a mandate to build these types of housing. Mm -hmm. um, and at the same time, the, it's gonna be a long and slow process where cities are not gonna suddenly overnight see a shift from single family neighborhoods to you know, many multiplex developments. Um, the single family homes that exist today, homes that are in good shape and like not older housing that's, that's really in poor condition, they're going to, it's not going to be worth it for a developer to buy an expensive single family house and redevelop it into a plex. Mm -hmm. They're going, they're going to be looking for more rundown houses that are going to get redeveloped one way or another. And they're probably going to get redeveloped as a single family home. If, if we leave it in the, in, in existing regulatory conditions. Um, and so it's, it's both important, I think, to emphasize that this is not a mandate and that cities, people that, want to build more single family homes, there's no, there's nothing that's gonna make it any more difficult for them to do that. Mm -hmm. um, and at the same time, it's not gonna be a, a wholesale change of your neighborhood overnight. It, 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 over decades, uh, we'll see a gradual shift, but single family homes will always be part of the fabric. There is a need for single family homes, people with families. Um, it's just that over time, our demographics have changed. We have fewer people per household and um, there's, a much stronger need now than there was decades ago for more diverse housing types. Um, and while there always will be people that want and need uh, and will have access to single family homes, this will simply allow more people to have more options uh, so that they're not just stuck with buying, you know, the Cadillac of houses. They can also, you know, buy a Toyota Camry. Mm -hmm. type, yeah. Type of, yeah. I like yeah. that. I like that. Um, that's a good metaphor. Um, yeah. So one question that I like asking people is if you had complete authority to create any housing policy you wanted to uh, in the state of Oregon, what would you do? Huh, that's a tough question. I think it's, well, for one, every community would have, I think, a somewhat different response to this. And I think we need to uh, respect that and acknowledge it. Um, and not every community has transit, but I think in the communities that do have transit, it would be one of the biggest levers that we would have is to increase the ability to build uh, higher higher densities along transit lines. Mm 
Mm-hmm. Um, so say within like a quarter mile of a transit line, if we could build more apartment buildings, uh, that would increase a lot of uh, opportunities for, for housing and also have a big impact on our transportation emissions, um, while at the same time giving people more access to jobs that are within uh, existing urbanized areas and then close in into downtowns. This has been At Home in Oregon. You can find us online at athomeinor.com. There you can listen to previous episodes, learn more about these topics that we've talked about, and you can even consider donating to help support the podcast. If you have any questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes, you can send me an email at gmail.com. I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to listen. Thank you so much. We'll be back in two weeks.